Good morning. Did we do the gospel reading? I didn't see. Oh, we did. Okay. See, I walked out for a moment. That's what happens. My apologies. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 again. We're going to be um, spending a little bit of time there and looking at some other scriptures. But if you'd like to take some time to turn in your Bibles or your phones to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for your mercy on us. Thankful that we get to gather together as a body and worship together to love one another, to learn to love one another, and to learn more about Jesus and your resurrection and the hope that awaits us. Lord, let that motivate us, turn our hearts and our eyes toward you this morning. Use this sermon, use the worship service, the songs that were sung, and Lord, shape our hearts and grow us to maturity in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So throughout the Easter season, we've been spending some time in 1 Corinthians 15, as uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you're aware of that. That 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul's kind of, that big chapter on the resurrection. It's also, the big thing about that chapter is it's also one of the earliest writings on the resurrection. We might think that the Gospels were written earlier, but the Apostle Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians much earlier, probably, uh, probably in the 50s, so maybe 20 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead. So this is the great chapter declaring the centrality and the truth of Christ's resurrection. Not only that, but his victory over death and what that means for the followers of Christ. Paul teaches us that the resurrection gives us a glimpse into the future. It gives us hope. It gives us a vision for something more that awaits us through the new life that was given to Christ and is for all of those who call upon him. And he gives us a light about or, or a vision on how to live in light of that resurrection. So how are we to do that? The first thing we looked at last week was, was Paul telling the church in Corinth to do everything. We looked at chapter that verse in chapter 16 at the end where he says, everything you do, do all in love. Everything we do should be driven, motivated by the servant-hearted, selfless, caring, Christ-like love for one another. It should be a component of everything that we do. And we spent time in 1 Corinthians 13 where, where Paul gives that great chapter on love and what love perfect love actually is and does. So today I want us to look more closely at the work that the Lord is calling us to do with that heart of love. This work is going to include three things, and we're looking primarily at, at chapter 15, verse 58. It's the last, the last verse in chapter 15. And this work is going to include three things, abiding, building, and abounding. So abiding, building, and abounding. So if you remember, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. He says this twice in chapter 15, first in uh, verse 20 and next in verse 23. First fruits of the resurrection. This is saying that this is the first fruit of the harvest. And when we talk about first fruits, when we hear first fruits talked about in the Bible, it's saying there's more to come. Jesus opened up the door and he told us and showed us what this new resurrected life is for all of those who follow. 
He told King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul told King Agrippa this. He said that the Christ must suffer, when he's persuading King Agrippa to come to Christ, said that he was reminding him of the prophecy that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead or the first fruit to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles or all the nations. In other words, he's saying when Christ rose from the dead, he shined light on the Jews and the Gentiles, all the nations, for what was to come, the glorious hope of a resurrected life, of new life. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was a glimpse into the future. It's to show us that he has conquered death and and that his new life will be ours as well. It's meant to give us hope for living. It's meant to be our vision for living. If you're familiar with Simon Sinek, it's our why. It's why we do what we do as a church. Resurrection is the central, the central heart of our faith. Jesus being the first, fruit, first fruits of the new life tells us, his followers, this is what awaits you. Start living for it. So Paul starts uh, 1558 with this. He starts this word, therefore, And if you ever heard a pastor say, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask what it's there for. And that's exactly it. The therefore is always looking back to what was written. Most of chapter 15 is the assurance of this firm foundation that we have in the resurrection of Christ. A foundation on which we can build. To stand firm, to be immovable. That's what he says to do. Therefore, in light of all of these things that Jesus has done, in light of him conquering death and rising from the dead and now living an indestructible life and giving it to you, now therefore stand firm, be immovable. Don't let anything, any teaching, any person, any situation rock you off of this foundation. That's what he's saying. He's saying to abide on this foundation. The word abide is is simply to dwell, to remain, to live. And he's saying that this foundation is firm, that we can abide on that foundation. Thinking about foundations, thinking about building, what we're going to talk about a little bit. I was doing a little research on the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Um, Just thinking about how they were built um, what went into the building, the constructing of these, of these huge towers before they were destroyed. Before building the Twin Towers, architects, designers, and artists, as you know, before building any kind of a, of a, of a major building project, the architects, designers, and artists will put together a model. And they'll put together this model to, that, that, that was, if you see, ever see a picture of the models of, of these Twin Towers, it's, it's an exact replica. They're, all the detail is there, it's just a scaled down model. But they're there for the plan to show what the project's going to look like when it's all done. To show this is what it's going to look like to, to hopefully get people to invest, to get people to decide to go with it, to get people excited about it. It kind of sets the vision for what they're going to be doing. And the, and the model was impressive, and it was exciting to see. I mean, except for the guy who owned the Empire State Building. I don't think he was too happy about it, because now some buildings were going to be bigger than his. But, that's true, um, but, but there was a problem. 
Once they had all the plans together to build the building, they had to figure out where it was going to be built. They, they, they knew where it was going to be built, but when they did uh, an assessment of the ground, the ground wasn't solid. It was too close to the Hudson River, and because it was too close to the Hudson River, there was water that was going to seep into the ground. So they had to figure out a way. They didn't want to change the location. They already had a great location there, but they had to figure out a way to create, to, to keep this water out. So they, they, they utilized a new Italian method at the time called a, a, a slurry wall, which doesn't sound very solid, but it really was. Um, in fact, there's a, I think the actual slurry wall is, is uh, on display in one of the uh, 9-11 museums. But this was a, a new technology to build a perimeter around where the foundation was going to go. And it was keeping all of the water out of the dirt, out of the ground. Because the other thing that would happen is if they dug into, to, to begin building these buildings without putting up this wall, without keeping out the water, then it would also cause the, the ground to, to move and cause some of the other buildings to shift and perhaps collapse. So they built this wall. And once that was in, they had to secure it, and they dug 70 feet deep to get to the bedrock. And at that point, they were on a solid foundation and were able to build. But it wasn't until they had knowledge of a firm foundation, of that solid foundation before they could even think about building, before they could even think about adding anything to it. And this is what Paul is telling us. He's starting off by saying that you have a firm foundation on which you can build your work to the Lord. It is firm, and beyond that, he says, we're not to just sit and rest on that foundation. We can't abide in it. We can rest as far as our, have peace, but we're not to just sit and do nothing on that foundation. We're not called to sit and wait, but we're called to do the work of the Lord in hope of the resurrection and full restoration. So we have a, a foundation on which we can abide, on which we can dwell. But on that dwelling, we're to do the work of the Lord. What exactly is the work of the Lord? Well, using the Spirit's gifts given to all of Christ's disciples, we are to build his church. When we look at the work of the Lord, that, that, that term is used all throughout Scripture. And if, and, and if we look at the context of, of what Paul is saying, best I could tell, um, after reading numerous commentaries and, and articles on this, it makes sense that the work of the Lord that Paul is talking about involves building the church, building the church of Christ. And we can divide this up into different elements of what, of what this involves. But we'll see some of this in chapter 14 of, of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this. He, he tells the Corinthians, in, in the midst of them talking about their gifts, in the midst of, in the midst of having their arguments, you know, they had a lot of troubles. Um, that church was a new church. It was going through a lot of difficulty, a lot of divisions, a lot of factions. And they were trying to get stability. And Paul was trying to bring them back to the center. And he says this in chapter 14, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. I think that's a good word for all of us. In all we do, strive to build up, strive to excel in building up the church. 
What does that look like? We're going to go through a few parts of this from different scriptures, but mostly from the writing of Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians. First of all, we touched on this last week, speaking to one another in love. We see this in Ephesians 4.15, where he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it's supplied. And verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, a lot of us think about, for me to have a controlled tongue means I'm not going to cuss. And so sometimes, some of us may do really, really well not cussing. But yet we'll say a sharp, and some of us may not. But, we'll all, but then we'll, we'll turn around and give a sharp word to someone we love. Perhaps we'll gossip. Perhaps we'll talk behind somebody's back, which is gossip. Perhaps we'll, we'll tell half-truths, we'll call them. We'll say things to manipulate someone. And I would say, if that's, if that's our idea of a controlled tongue, I think we're better off just cussing. The idea here is that we are, our, our tongues should be used to build one another up in love. Not to check off whether we said certain words or not but how we loved one another with our tongues, how we loved one another with our speech, how perhaps we withheld a harsh word, or how we spoke to someone in love and encouragement to care for them at a time when they most needed it. Building one another up through speaking to one another in love. Secondly, teaching one another. So they're speaking to one another in love, but also teaching one another, which, in, which requires knowing the word of God. Paul says this to the Colossian church in, in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the same word, abide. Let it abide, let it remain, let it dwell in you richly. In order to do that, we need to fill ourselves with the word of God. But he says in order that we can, we can have that word dwelling in us richly for the purpose of teaching one another, admonishing one another. Admonishing one another is warning each other, correcting one another. But that doesn't give us the license to correct one another harshly. Go back to the first thing, speaking the truth in love, speaking corrections in love, teaching one another in love but to do that by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So we have speaking, we have teaching, we have knowing the word. Next we have restoring one another. Paul tells the Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this is chapter 6, verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any kind of sin, any kind of wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are led by the Spirit, should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restoring a brother or a sister who has gone astray. 
who has wandered away from the faith. Perhaps they hurt you. Perhaps this restoring involves a transgression that was against you and that hurt you deeply. It's our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. The work of Christ is to seek to restore one another with gentleness and respect for one another. And in four, if we go to the next verse in chapter six of Galatians, Paul says this, bear one another's burdens. Not only are we to we restore one another, but we are to bear one another's burdens. Reminds me of the, of the passage that was read in Ezekiel that Doug read. With the shepherds that, that Ezekiel, that, that God was rebuking through Ezekiel were ones who were thinking only of themselves. When there was a burden, they would take advantage of it. They would feed themselves and not the hungry. They would care for themselves and not the sick, not the poor. When one was lost, they wouldn't waste their time to go get them. They would care only for themselves. Paul is calling us through Christ to bear one another's burdens. Bear the burdens of someone's sickness, of someone's financial issues, of someone's struggle with their faith, of their doubts, of their grief from great loss. Bearing with those burdens, sharing those burdens with them. Because isn't that what Christ tells us to do for him, to him? To cast all of our burdens on him. Why? Because he cares for us and he loves us. And we should be loving one another in the same way and bearing one another's burdens. The other thing about bearing one another's burdens and restoring one another is that it, it, it requires us getting involved in each other's lives. That's a challenge. It's a challenge because it'll take our time. It'll take our money. It'll take our efforts. But it's what we're called to do. And I know none of us do that perfectly. I certainly do not. But I can't get away from what this is what we're called to do. Next, we're called to these were, these were all internal, all within the church, all within the, the family of God. But one other in building up the church is reaching out and inviting people to Christ. Visual examples, looking around, seeing the empty seats and striving to fill them, figuratively and literally. Striving to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. As Peter calls us and says to the church, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He says this to everyone, not just church leaders. He says this to everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of Christ. Everyone who considers them a disciple of Christ, themselves a disciple of Christ. Peter says this, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? 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 That you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You've experienced the light of Christ. You've experienced the forgiveness and the, and the release of the burden of sin. And now he is calling us to go out and proclaim that same light, that same excellency of forgiveness and light and lifting the burden of sin to the world. That's what he's calling us to do. To be mouthpieces for the gospel. Jesus did that himself before he, before he was ascended into heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations. We're not just to remain inside, but we're to go out and to call people to come to Christ. One last example of, of building up the church is connected with a vision, which I love. It's, it's, it's out of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Which, by the way, this letter to the Ephesians probably was not just written to the Ephesians, but it was probably a, what's, what's called a circular letter. It was written and circulated to, to other churches in Asia Minor. And their name, the name of their church would be put on it as it was sent to them. But Paul says this in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says, he, he talks about Christ dying and rising from the dead and then ascending to the Father. And he says, as he ascended to the Father, he gave gifts to all of his people. He gave gifts from the Spirit to all of his people. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now that's the church leaders. But there's a purpose to those church leaders. And it's this, to equip the saints. The saints are all of us. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. It simply means separated one. To equip the saints, why? For the work of ministry, for the work of the Lord. That what we are to do here as church leaders, as a church leader, I, I should be equipping you with the word of God, with ways for you to be able to minister the gospel to one another and to the community. That's what all church leaders are called to do. But we still have the same work to do together for building up the body of Christ. And I love this, that Paul gives a vision for what this is going toward, for the goal of this. He gives kind of that, that model that we can look at and say, that's what I want. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we could look like Jesus, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. In other words, that we may stand firm and not be moved, that we may be firmly, firmly dwelling on that solid foundation that we may be equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love I heard Tim Keller say this he, he, he said you know most people outside the church don't like the church but almost everybody approves of Jesus and a lot of times it's because of how human we are in the church, right? The goal, the vision of the church here is to look as much like Christ 
as we possibly can, to strive that the work of the Lord that we're doing is causing us as a body to look like the body of Christ. To love as Christ loves, to love one another as Christ loves us. To be forgiving, caring, bearing one another's burdens and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And then Paul says that we are to be, at the end of chapter 15 here, he says, abounding in the work of the Lord. We're to do this work. We are to be building up the church as, as, as Christ followers. We're to be building up one another so that we may be building up the church so that we may together look like the body of Christ. But he says so that your work, so he says this to encourage us and says, knowing this, that your labor is not in vain. And I think to myself, why do you say that? My guess is because a lot of people felt like their labor was in vain. That all they were doing for Christ, that all they were doing to build up the church was just frustrating. Christy and I, after we got married, decided to, I mean, really, after a lot of prayer and conversation with a lot of people, decided to have a, a young girl move in with us. It was a girl that Christy knew from her work, and uh, it was a girl who, who we really liked and got to know. And she had a family, but she wasn't allowed to live with her family. And she needed a place. She was 14. She came to live with us. We had no children at the time. And we were excited to have her. We were excited to, to pour our lives into her. And she lived with us four years. We got her into a school. Um, Christy... When, when the time came, got her involved in, in uh, applying for colleges. She got accepted to a college. If she was going to graduate, she'd have been the first one in her family to graduate. And we were really excited for her. And she had just turned 18. And it was in December. And one night on her 18th birthday, it was actually on her 18th birthday, she came downstairs and said, I'm leaving. Without any warning, without any discussion, she said, I'm, I'm leaving. I got a friend coming to pick me up. And she left. And that was it. And I'd like to say that there's a happy ending to this story, but there isn't. We saw her once or twice after that. The reason why I tell that story is because a lot of times we're involved in the work of the Lord. We're striving to be building up the church. We're striving to do things for the Lord. We're striving to, to love people well. And it doesn't turn out how we think it should. And it becomes very frustrating. It becomes sad. It becomes devastating and hurtful. And we wonder, why are we doing this? This is useless. It was four wasted years.
That's why Paul reminds us the work that you're doing is not in vain. It's not useless. Sure felt like it. It sure felt like it. Paul tells the Galatians this. Well, he tells, well, the the writer of Hebrews says this. When you're beaten down by the work of the Lord in your life, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He tells the Romans this that we heard many times, but I'm trying to absorb this, this. I'm trying to read this verse with more fresh eyes and ears. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That just because it didn't turn out the way that I thought it should turn out or the way Christy thought it should turn out, or just because some relationship in our church here doesn't turn out the way we think it should go. Or if this person who seemed like, so, like they were so close to the Lord and ends up, we never see them again. God's telling us not to grow weary. Because we don't know his plan. We don't know what he's doing. And he tells the Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good. And I'll remind us, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially the brothers and sisters in the church. Grace and peace, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let us remember the firm foundation on which we stand, on which we can dwell, in which we can abide, and let us abound in the work of the Lord, loving one another, encouraging one another, caring for one another, casting our burdens on one another, and helping us cast those burdens on the Lord, and let us build up Christ's church together. Pray with me. Jesus, help us, help us in our weariness, and help us, Lord, to remember the great work you did for us, the foundation that you established, that we could stand on that firm foundation and build your work, build your church, and do the work that you've called us to do. Help us have mercy on us in Christ's name. Amen.